Hey, don't we need to do the intro to Papa's podcast? Oh yeah, I forgot. Isn't that the boring one? No, that's the theology one. It's the boring theology podcast. <laughs> that's so stupid. Welcome to the Boring Theology Podcast, where we will be digging our way through the Bible from a Reformed confessional perspective. I'm your host, Michael Esch. Today we're back into the Bible Timeline series, where we are going to be digging into uh, the section of the timeline where we are in Canaan and Judges. Um, Just to recap the, the Bible Timeline so far, is that we covered the beginning, we covered creation and the fall of man. We talked about the patriarchs, and then their, uh, Israel going into Egypt, their exodus out of Egypt. Today, we're going to be talking about after they've been in the desert for 40 years, they're going to be entering into the land of Canaan. They're going to be fighting the Canaanites. They're going to be establishing the, the kingdom of, of uh, Israel in um, in the land of Canaan. Then uh, next week we will be talking about the early kings. So this is Saul, David, Solomon. And then we're going to get into uh, the divided kingdom. After the divided kingdom, Israel becomes so rebellious that they are exiled into Babylon and then they return. And then throughout that time period, before the exile, during the exile and during the time of the return of the exile, there are these men called prophets, and we'll be talking about them throughout that time period. After that, <clears throat> after Israel has returned and they have established the second temple, uh, there's 400 years of silence. And during that time, after that time, Jesus comes, he's incarnated. Uh, that means be, he wraps himself in flesh, he is born of a virgin. He lives a perfect life. And then he dies on the cross. He's buried. He resurrects. And then he, he is around for 40 days and then he ascends from there. There we'll get into the early church and then we'll talk about the church today. And finally, our final episode will be about Christ's return, his judgment and his reign. And then that will wrap up our Bible timeline series. So today, I guess last week we talked about, well, I guess it was two weeks ago. Last week, I didn't put out an episode because of everything that was going on with COVID-19. And I didn't plan on putting out an episode on that and everything was really chaotic. And so I didn't plan on doing anything with that. So I kind of took a week off. Um, I also took vacation so I could stay home with my family. Um, But I'm not going to be talking about that on this podcast unless somebody sends in a question. So today we're just going to be talking about uh, the Bible Timeline series. And last, or I guess two weeks ago, we we ended with Moses seeing the promised land, but not being allowed to enter into the promised land. He gives his final speech in the book of Deuteronomy to the people of Israel, and he's giving them a warning, and he's giving them encouragement. And he's, he's reminding them of the law before they enter into the kingdom. Um, we also see at the end of Deuteronomy that Moses passes on his blessing to a man named Joshua. And that's where we start off today. We're going to start off talking about Canaan and Judges. We start with Joshua. Uh, the first five books of the Bible um, we've already covered and and then the Joshua is the sixth book and Judges is the seventh book. So the, the, the setting right now is that the Israelites have been in the desert for 40 years. There's all the whole generation that was there when they walked through or out of Egypt and then they rebelled against God has all passed away. They've died off and now there's a new generation that is going to enter into the promised land. We have a couple things that are going to be circumstantially different, um, but there is going to be similarities in the way that God is interacting with his people. 
So what we would say is that God's covenant of grace has been maintained. Some of the circumstances have changed. Three of the circumstances that we'll look at today are there's a new leader, there's a new baptism, and there's a new circumcision. So the new leader is Joshua. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses lays his hands on Joshua and blesses him. Much like today in the New Testament, where elders or pastors lay their hands on new elders during an ordination process. This is a, 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 a process that they do, they've, they've done throughout biblical history of passing on leadership and authority to people that are going to rule over God's people or to lead God's people. Uh, the book of Joshua begins with God commissioning Joshua to lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan. And so God is actually speaking to Joshua, and he's, there's going to be a lot of similarities here between Joshua and Moses. Um, as we get into this, you're going to see a little bit more of this. Um, Joshua, just like Moses, commissioned spies to go into the land across from the Jordan River. And um, the first city that they went to go spy on was a city named Jericho. Um, Jericho, uh, this is a very familiar passage in the Bible. A lot of uh, kids learn about the uh, walls of Jericho. There's songs that are saying about it. But um, in this story, they send the spies to go to to spy out the land, the land of Canaan. And the first city that they're going to encounter is this big city with these giant walls that surround the city. And they're thick walls. They're so thick that people actually live inside the walls. So they, they would have like little windows that would like kind of make out throughout the walls, but it was still like a full wall barrier. And a lot of um, cities in ancient times would build these walls for protection to, to against any invading military. And here we have uh, the Israelites that are well past a million people at this time, and they're coming into, um, they're about to, they're on the other side of the Jordan River, about to enter into the land of Canaan. Joshua sends these spies over, and these spies enter, encounter um, a, a prostitute named Rahab. Now she's going to, she repents from her lifestyle, and she puts her faith in God, we see her talked about in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, that she had faith in God. And so that means that she is, she has heard about the, the God of Israel and she's repenting from her Canaanite ways. And she um, is going to be redeemed in a, a very significant way in scripture. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But right now she helps the spies. She hides the spies in her apartment in the wall and then she lets she lets them get away so that they can go back to give Joshua the crucial information that they gathered while they were there and then she lies to the Jericho uh, authorities the about the spies she tells them that they went a different way and so that allowed uh, the spies to to get back to Joshua um, a little side note about the redemption of Rahab is that Rahab becomes a very important part of the biblical story. We, we've talked about this throughout this series, that the whole narrative of Scripture is about God. And this narrative is, in the way that Rahab plays into this narrative, narrative is, is not talked about often, but... Um, she is one of Jesus's ancestors. Rahab ends up marrying an Israelite named Salmon, and his child is Boaz. If you remember from this, the book of Ruth, Ruth marries Boaz, and then Boaz and Ruth are the grandparents to King David, and Jesus comes from the lineage of King David. So here we see that Rahab is far, 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 far back 
is a uh, ancestor to Jesus. Um, and so um, if you look in the um, genealogies in the New Testament, you will see Rahab listed among them. Um, and this is all important because it's telling you how God is keeping his covenant of grace, this everlasting covenant for his people, that even when his people are not faithful to him, God is still faithful to them. And so that's going to be constantly a story throughout scripture. And you're going to see that as we get into uh, more of the story. So as the spies return to Joshua, they tell Joshua that they can take Jericho. This is a very positive response um, to the spies. Whereas when uh, Moses had sent the spies, it was overwhelmingly a negative response and um, a, a lack of faith that God would be with them in taking the Canaanites. Um, the spies here to Joshua tell that they can take the city. Now, uh, the story of the battle of Jericho, um, there's... Uh, before we get to the Battle of Jericho, um, there's several things that are usually skipped over while telling these stories. And um, these two sections are the things that I talked about where the circumstances had changed. First was is the baptism of the Israelites going into Canaan. A lot of people know when God parted the Red Sea during the Exodus out of Egypt, but the story of when God parts the Jordan Sea so that Joshua can walk through the sea with the Israelites and the Ark of the Covenant into the Promised Land, uh, the Jordan River is, is parted and the Israelites walk on dry land. If you go on Google today, you can see the, the Jordan River. It's a large river. Um, it, it's... It's not just a small stream. This is this is similar to the, this is such a magnificent thing that that it was pure and utter miracle that a river would be parted so that the uh, Israelites could walk across on dry land. Um, I know that some people are going to he- hear this and say, "Well, I just read the the passage of when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River in Joshua three, and I don't see the words baptism." And I would agree with you, the word baptism isn't used in that passage, but the word baptism isn't used in the, um, in the Exodus passage out of, um, through the Red Sea with Moses either. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, we see that Paul associates, associates these, um, these walking through these waters that God is parting these are a, a sign and seal of the covenant in baptism. And they use the word baptism because in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, we see that Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So here we see we see this evidence of this covenant of grace. He says it's the same spiritual food. It's the same spiritual drink. These are the same signs and seals of the covenant that we see in the New Testament, just different circumstances surround them. So Paul's describing the parting of the Red Sea of Moses as baptism for that generation. This new baptism under Joshua uh, receives a baptism too. Um, we have to remember what baptism um, symbolizes, and it's the symbolism of God washing and regenerating his people. It's him making his people clean. The signs of baptism is is that God is making his covenant people clean, that God 
is the one who's washing them. It's not anything that the Israelites are doing or have done that has made them holy. We've seen that throughout the podcast, that the only thing that the Israelites are bringing to their salvation is their sin that makes salvation even necessary. So here in the baptism, we're seeing um, God symbolically showing his people that he is going to save them. He's giving them a sign and a seal so that they can remember, so that they can edify their faith that when they're in these battles to come, and there's going to be a lot of battles, and there's going to be a lot of doubt, and there's going to be a lot of discouragement as they go through these wars and this continuous wars for a long time, that they can look back and they can remember their baptism and they can build on that baptism. The Westminster Larger Catechism, um, question 167 asks, how is our baptism to be improved by us? The answer is the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation. And when we are presented at the administration of it to others by serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby and our solemn vow made therein by being humbled for our sinful defilement are falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of the baptism and our engagements by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all our blessings sealed to us in that sacrament by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ in whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same spirit into one body. So here, the, the point of, of this catechism is to say that baptism isn't just a one-time thing that happens where you just announce that you've become a Christian and now you're baptized. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. This is saying that we can look back to our baptism and remember that our baptism wasn't about us. It wasn't about us doing something for God. It was about God doing something for us. It's a sign and a seal to us of what God has done and will do for God's people. And so he's doing this for the Israelites here to encourage them in times of need that they are about to go through um, as they battle through the Canaanites. Uh, in the second thing that after they are the third circumstance that changes after uh, they enter into, um, so they, they're outside, uh, they're in the desert, they cross over the Jordan River, they're baptized into it. When they enter into the land of Canaan, they don't just go straight into the battle. First, there is a um, is a ceremony where they set up 12 memorial stones. They're to look back on the tribes of Israel um, that are set up and that they are a unit, that they are one nation, that, that God has made a covenant with them and to their children, and this is for all of Israel. Um the next thing that they are going to do is, and this is the third circumstance, is is that they're going to renew circumcision as the sign and seal of the covenant. Here we see that um, a generation that rebelled during the desert did not circumcise their children. They did not give the sign and the seal to their children, and it was out of rebellion that they didn't give the signs to their children, that they didn't give... Um, the circumcision to them. And so here we see Israel repenting and um, committing themselves to the signs and seals. So the adults and the children are now getting circumcised. And of, co of course, this is just the males 
are getting circumcised. There's not in the Bible. There's not any um, circumcision for the women. Um, the sign and seal of the new covenant was inclusive to women, um, and women were um, received that sign and that seal in the in the new covenant. But when we look at circumcision, we should remember why God gave them this sign. Um, the first was to remind them of the promise that God made to them, that God was going to send a seed that was going to redeem them, that seed being Christ. And that um, it was also a sign to remind them that it was for them and their children, that they are all covenant members in the covenant community that is not just some for adults, but it is also for their children and that the adults should be passing this on to their children, that they should be passing on the teachings of their children. And we're going to see a large part of Israel's rebellion is the lack of teaching it to their children coming down to the sacrificing of their children and killing of their children in their in the rebellion against God. But we'll get to that in um, the divided kingdom section. Uh, the second reason that they are given the sign of circumcision is so that they would circumcise their hearts and that they would repent and believe in God who saves them. Much like baptism is in the New Testament, that we look at baptism and we should wash ourselves of our sin, that we should we should repent of our sin, that we should make ourselves clean. And we know, just like in the New, uh, New and Old Testament, the Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit circumcised their hearts and and then, and that's promised that the Holy Spirit would circumcise their hearts, and yet it's still commanded to them to circumcise their hearts. So that we see, um, when the Holy Spirit works, there is fruit in a person's life. So the Holy Spirit is doing it, but then the people are also doing it. So it is a reminder and an encouragement to believers to put their faith and trust in God and to obey Him. The third reason that they're circumcised is a sign of judgment. This is a sign that says um, if you reject God, if you disobey the covenant, if you don't put your faith in God, if you start worshiping idols, if you reject God, you will be cut off. That's what circumcision is, is the cutting off of the foreskin on males. And just like the foreskin is cut off, the people of God will be cut off who rebel against God. And we see that throughout scripture that there are in the covenant community, there are people that apostatize, meaning that they they were part of the covenant community and then they reject God. This doesn't mean that they were saved and then they lost their salvation. This just means that they were part of the covenant community and they were or they were born into the covenant community and then they they rejected God. So in a sense they were um, never there. There's two parts of the covenant community. There's the visible part, and then there's the invisible part. The invisible part is the people that are actually saved, but then the visible part is a mixture of people who are saved and people who aren't saved. And so we see that the sign is given to all of the visible community, but for the believers, it's given as a sign to edify their faith. And to the unbelievers, it's a sign of judgment. It's a warning to them. After they've received the baptism and the circumcision, they also observe Passover. And in in Joshua, in the early parts of of this book, and still we're in chapter 5 now, they observe Passover. This is with um, unleavened bread and wine. We also see Jesus observing Passover on the night before he dies. And he actually institutes a new form of, of a Passover in communion. So we still use the bread and the wine, or some churches use juice, uh, the fruit of the vine. But they, they are observing this before they go to their battle of Jericho. This is always a constant reminder. It's constant throughout all of scripture that God is doing this for God's glory, that 
this is and, and that's what needs to be remembered. This isn't how great the military advances of Israel are. For the most part, you're going to see that they shouldn't have been winning these wars. There's actually going to be a time in, in a, a second that we're going to talk about in Judges where God actually removes a lot of people just to demonstrate that it is him who's saving them, who it's him who is making them successful. Um, but here we're seeing this really this buildup of, of, of God lavishing these gifts of these signs and seals onto his people, that they can see how God is faithful, how he's been faithful, how he will be faithful, and how he will continue to be faithful, and that he is the great I am. He is constant. And even when they are unfaithful, God will still be faithful to them. That's a continuous story. That's, that is the story of scripture. So we enter in the Israelites attack Jericho. Now, this is not a normal attack from, from like our perspectives of how war should go. Um, they, the Israelites gather outside of the walls of Jericho and they just start marching around the walls of Jericho and they just walk around them. For seven days, they walk around the walls of Jericho. And on the seventh day, God, not Israel, God brings down the walls of Jericho. They crumble. And then the Israelites go through and they annihilate um, the city of Jericho. They kill everybody. Now, the, the family that is saved is Rahab. Um, and her family, they are saved because they put their faith and trust in God, and God redeemed them and he saved them. Now, so far, we've been talking about God issuing judgments on all sorts of people. We've talked about it with Noah, we've talked about it with Sodom and Gomorrah, and we talked about it in Egypt with the Egyptians. We've also talked about how God has issued judgments on the Israelites. But now, when we start talking about the Israelites fighting in wars or holy wars, and we start talking about them annihilating people groups, um, I think it starts to make us feel uncomfortable. Um, and it should. God's judgment is something that we should fear, and it's terrifying. But something that we should remember is, is that God's judgment is always just. That God's judgment against people for their sin is always just. It, it, God has an obligation to, to pour out judgment on the wicked. That's, that's how justice works. There's obligation to punish the wicked. Mercy, the differences with mercy is that God is not obligated to be merciful to anybody. That's, that would, that's, goes against the definition of what mercy is. The, the definition of mercy is giving mercy to somebody who deserves judgment. They deserve something else, and you're giving them something that they don't deserve. So here, the Canaanites deserve this judgment. Um, in Scripture, we hear about the things that the Canaanites have, have done. Um, we read about it in different sections of Scripture, but in, in Deuteronomy specifically, it talked about how they were sacrificing their children to idols, they would do this so that they would earn they they believed that these idols would pour out favor on them if they would sacrifice their children so that if they sacrifice their children they would get health wealth prosperity they would get the um, protection against their cities so they sacrificed their children they would put they would actually build up a big fire and they would throw their children into the fire um there was also sexual immorality. We read about this in Leviticus 18. We talk about how the Canaanites practiced incest. They practiced bestiality, homosexuality, and, and there's a lot of other things listed in Leviticus 18, and you can go and read those. But they also practiced uh, witchcraft, fortune-telling. They were trying to they, – they try to continuously communicate with the dead – um, they would pray to the dead. They would try to talk to the dead, um, and they would. They were worshiping idols, um, and the list goes on. There's. I could do a whole podcast on on the immorality of the Canaanites that is described in Scripture, but this is a a, 
a decent sized summary to get what is that God is pouring out the judgment on them and they all deserve God's judgment because they are all fallen and they've all been totally depraved and that God is pouring out that judgment on them. The rest of the book of Joshua is going to tell about his military experience. A lot of Joshua, as we begin the book, we see that Joshua is being um, righteous, that he is obeying God, that he listens to God, that he um, he has the people obey the laws of God, that he executes the laws, and that he punishes those that God tells him to punish. He issues judgment on the people that God tells him to judge, um, to judge, and that and that Joshua is faithful and he's a good leader of the Israelites. Um, we see, though, in chapter 9, Joshua makes a covenant with the Gibeonites. Now, God's um, uh, instructions to Joshua were that they were supposed to, that Joshua was supposed to lead the Israelites into Canaan and that they were supposed to um, take out all of the Canaanites in the land of Canaan. So in the promised land, in what is going to be deemed Israel, that, that Joshua is supposed to clear out all the Canaanites. He is not to give them any mercy, and he is not to make any covenants with them. Now, the Gibeonites come to Joshua, and they tell them, they tell Joshua that they're from a far, far away land. So Joshua makes a covenant with them. But it turns out that the Gibeonites were in the land of Canaan. They were Canaanites. They had lied to Joshua. Their tribe was actually just eight miles north of, of the land of Jerusalem. So when Joshua finds this out, he honors his covenant because Joshua is an honorable leader, but he curses them. Um, and he, and he, the curse for them is that they would not become a great people and that they would become slaves. Um, and we see that God honors this curse of them, and that is what becomes of the Gibeonites. But we also see that the the promise and the covenant to the Gibeonites is honored in Scripture. The rest of the book outlines his battles um, and his success in conquering the land of Canaan. Now, Joshua doesn't conquer all of the land of Canaan, but he conquers a lot of it. And so after he does that, the rest of the book moves through explaining how the tribes divide up the land of Canaan and how uh, they move out. And then the end of the book of Joshua ends with Joshua giving a, um, a speech to the Israelites, much like how Moses gave his farewell speech. A lot of Joshua is is being similar to Moses. Now, what's going to be really interesting is we're going to move into the book of Judges, and now there is no Moses. There is no Joshua. There is no leader that is spiritually leading Israel. And we're going to see that they are going to get into a dark, dark place. And at this time, I would, um, if children are listening to this podcast, I would urge um, parents with with caution as we go through this, this next section because uh, the book of Judges is graphic and I'm going to explain it. Uh, a lot of passages, a lot of pastors don't preach on and they don't talk about, um, not because I think the pastors are wrong or because they're scared of doing it, but because I think that a lot of these stories are really intense, especially for children. So uh, just use discernment on how if you're going to let your children listen to this and knowing their maturity level, because this is going to get very graphic. Um, in the book of Judges, Joshua has now passed away and there is a lack of leadership. Um, it doesn't pass on directly to anybody. So at the end of Joshua, it begins, uh, the end of Joshua, he sets in charge elders over Israel, similar to the way Moses did um, in Israel that he he set up elders through. So that is something that Joshua is doing much like um, Moses. But the, there is also assumption that the Levitical priests are also 
going to be in charge. So we have the elders and the priest ruling over the people. Now you're going to see a lack of that in the book of Judges because uh, a theme throughout Judges is that there is no king, there is no leader, that the Israelites are rebellious. So um, when we start the book of Judges, we see that the, the tribes are are scattered out and that they are all over Israel and they're not one nation as much as they are 12 separate tribes. Um, and they're kind of just doing their own thing. The, there is no king in Israel. And, and the, the book of Judges says that every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. Um, some people have said that the book of Judges was written so that um, it would establish the the kings of Israel, that they would know why they have a king in Israel um, and to respect the king in Israel. But um, an, another part, as, as before we jump into and get into the stories of Judges, I, it should be known that the subtitle of, of the book of Judges should really be the canonization of Israel. Because throughout the whole book of Israel, we're going to see them get worse and worse. It is going to be a spiral of, of God's people going from being a holy people that have been obeying God from, jo- from Joshua in, in fighting off the Canaanites. And now we're going to see they're not fighting off the Canaanites. They're actually letting the Canaanites invade them or they're intermingling with the Canaanites. And then we're going to see them get wicked and more wicked and more wicked. And it's just going to spiral. And at first it starts off really slow and then it gets, it progressively gets worse and worse and worse as it, it dwindles down. Um, when we read the word judge, you shouldn't be thinking about a modern day judge in the black robe. We should be thinking about an ancient warrior leader that's executing God's judgment. So the book of Judges is a bunch of judges that God raises up to execute judgment on the Canaanites. Um, There's two types of judges in the book of Judges. We have six majors and six minors. Both follow the same spiral as they um, go throughout the book. The difference between majors and minors is similar to how we would distinguish between major and minor prophets is that the just the size of their stories. So the major judges have more writing, a story along with it. The minor judges have just like a sentence or two with it. The first major judge, and I won't really be talking about the minor judges, um, but the first major judge is uh, Othniel. And this is a short story, but it, it sets the pattern for the book. It begins with the people are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. They start worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. God gives them over to a Canaanite king who then sells them into slavery. They cry out to God for salvation and God sends them a judge, Othniel, who went to war against this king. He defeats them and then and then the people are given rest for 40 years. Now, it's an important thing to note that there's no evil ascribed to Othniel. He is just, it just says that he was raised up. The spirit of the Lord was on him. He went to war. He prevailed. There was rest and he died. No sin. They're not talking about anything that he has done that is is bad or wrong or even questionable. It's very clear he he just raised up. He did what God told him to do. He was successful, and then there was 40 years of peace. That's not to say that Othniel never sinned. That's just to say that this is setting up a theme for this story because you're going to start to see the spiral now. In the next story of the judges, we see Ahud who – begins the same way. The people did evil in the sight of God, and God sends an evil king to oppress them. Ehud Ehud now here, unlike Othniel, deceives a king. And this story is really weird because he goes to this king, and this king is described as a very fat man and uh, somebody who has... um, uh, over-consumed 
uh, and has been gluttonous. And, and we see that this king, this Canaanite king, is ruling over God's people, and he's being wicked against them. And Ehud goes to confront him, and it says that he hides, he hides a, um, a sword on his leg, and then um, he confronts him, but then he leaves. And as he's leaving, the king goes up to an upper chamber where there is a bathroom, and it says that the king is relieving himself. And Ehud sneaks into there, opens up the bathroom door, and sticks his knife into the king's stomach. And it says that the king was so fat that the the sword was enveloped in his stomach and that Ehud couldn't take the sword out. And so then he he leaves. It's kind of a gross story. It's not the grossest story in this book, but it it's starting to get into that the graphicness of this. Now in this story, um, Ehud, we start to see a minor spiral. And I, I think it could be argued and disputed, but I think it, fo- it does follow the spiral theme. Um, in the first one, the judge didn't use any sort of deception. In the second one, the judge, Ehud, is using deception. He's lying. He's deceiving. Uh, he's breaking one of the Ten Commandments to free the people. He's not being obedient in his um, in setting the people free. But uh, Ehud does set the people free. Uh, and then we move on to the next judge, which is Deborah. And this is a prophetess. Um, and her story is not like the other two stories, and there's not like the, any other stories, uh, because she doesn't kill um, the king. She just she prophesies that there will be a killing of the king. But when she te- foretells of the Canaanite king that's oppressing the people, um, we see that this king dies from another sort of deception from a woman, that he comes and seeks refuge in another woman, not Deborah's, a tent, and she gives him food and gives him rest. And right when he goes to sleep, she nails his head down into the ground. Um, I think that when we look at this story and we're thinking about the spiral nature of judges, we need to remember that in the Bible, whenever... uh, it talks about women or children ruling over people. This is a sign of God's judgment. That's specific in Isaiah chapter three, where um, Isaiah chapter three, verse 11 says, woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people infants are your, their oppressors. And women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. So here we see that in the in the spiral theme of judges, we're seeing that women have started to rule in in Israel because there's a lack of of male leadership. This is a, a, a rebellion against. God's order of creation. So he's using this as a sign of judgment on Israel, talking about how wicked that they have become. The next major judge is Gideon, who is one of the longer stories in the book of Judges. It begins with the Israelites. You won't believe this. They've done evil in the sight of the Lord. And they have become so oppressed, they've actually gone up into the mountains to hide. Um, we see a Christophany here with Gideon in that uh, Jesus appears to Gideon and he commands him to fight for Israel and he promises victory. His first task, though, is to destroy the idols in the uh, Israelites' camp. And so um, here we see now, – now we're seeing a – denigration of the type of judges that's going to, that are going to be judging Israel um, because Gibeon is afraid to destroy the idols. It's almost because the people would 
rebel against him and fight against him. So he actually goes at night and, and in the, the darkness of night, he destroys the, the idols in the town. And then he goes and hides in his father's house. The people then go to his father to confront him because they figured out it was Gideon who had done it. Now God still protects Gideon. So remember, God is faithful to his people, even when his people aren't faithful or putting a large amount of faith. When Jesus talked about putting faith in God, he said that it's even the size of a sesame seed, the smallest amount of faith in God. Um, And we see that here with Gideon. It's just a small amount of faith. This guy is not a very bold man. Um, His next uh, fight, so after this, the people kind of rally behind Gideon. And over time, Gideon gains the, the trust of the people. And so he leads an army out to fight against the Canaanites to expel the Canaanites out of the land. So, so Gibeon at this time has about 30,000 troops and the Canaanites um, and the military that they were going to fight against had about 135,000 troops. So we're already looking at a, a, a 10 times difference. But God tells, tells uh, Gibeon that, that with the 30,000 versus the 135,000, that some people might say that Gibeon was just a, an, an excellent commander or that the Israelites were just a fierce group of people and that they're 30,000 people just destroyed and they're just such good fighters that they were able to destroy 10 soldiers for every one of their soldier. Um, And so God says, that's not enough. If anybody is afraid to fight against uh, the Canaanites, tell them to go home. And when he does that, about 20,000 of them leave. And then, and then God keeps doing different things to whittle the the Israelite troops down and he whittles them down to 300 troops 300 versus 135,000 troops God does this to display his glory and so what he does is he has all of the the 300 they they gather above on the mountainsides and they set a flame fires and then they just bang on things and they make a bunch of noise. And then God causes a confusion to fall upon the Canaanites and they start killing themselves because they think they're being attacked and it's in the dark of night and they don't know what's going on. And so this enemy ends up killing themselves. Um, And so we see God's glory being displayed because no other time in history has that ever been a military tactic that's been used. This is God flexing his power and his glory to his people and to remind them that he is faithful to them even when they are not faithful to him. After all of this, um, Gideon takes gold from the enemies, uh, specifically their earrings, I guess the uh, Canaanites were known for having gold earrings. And he he takes uh, one earring. for They're all supposed to donate their earrings in. And he melts down the gold and he makes an idol out of it. Um, and the story ends with him and Israel worshiping the idol even after God had redeemed them. Um, so you, we're seeing the spiral start to get more and more wicked. Um, there are several more judges. Um, after after Gibeon, but the most famous judge is the last judge, and that's Samson. And a lot of people remember the story of Samson because he had long hair and he didn't cut it, and his power was in his hair. And when he was deceived by a, a prostitute, he cut his hair and he lost his power, and then he was cast out. Now. Part of that story is true. Part of that is way misunderstood. When Samson was born, his 
he was told their his parents were told that he was going to be a judge and that he was supposed to take the Nazarite vow for his entire life. The Nazarite vow was was simply a vow that said that you weren't going to touch anything unclean, especially dead animals, anything to do with death. You weren't supposed to touch anything like that. You weren't going to cut your hair during the vow and you were not to drink alcohol during the vow. This was a time that you were supposed to dedicate your life to God, it would be almost similar to people fasting for a time now in the New Covenant. But in the Old Covenant, they would take this Nazarite vow. Well, God had called Samson to live out the Nazarite vow for his entire life, that he was supposed to, to live, he was supposed to dedicate his entire life to God. But what we'll see is in the story of, of Samson is that Samson, we see him taking honey out of a dead animal. So he's he's touching unclean things and he's eating he's eating food out of a lion's stomach. Um, I think that even without the cleansing laws of the Old Testament, a lot of us would say that that was gross and disgusting. <laughs> so we see Samson doing that. We also see Samson getting drunk. Um, and then finally, the final part of this is when um, Samson allows his hair to be cut. He tells um, he tells the prostitute to cut his hair and that he would lose his power. Now, this this is important because he's he has now officially broken every single part of the covenant that he, he that God made with him that Samson has broken all of the covenant. And that's why God's spirit leaves Samson after he's broken this. Now, I, it should also be known that like, that Samson breaks a whole lot of other commandments from God. We see in the story of Samson, we see him disrespecting and dishonoring his parents. We see him lying. We see him murdering. And we see him being sexually immoral with the Canaanites. So, but we see God's spirit specifically leaving after he breaks the Nazarite vow, the entirety of the Nazarite vow Samson has broken. He has decided that he is not going to live at all his life as a dedication to God. So Samson is then captured. He is tortured. He is mocked. He has his eyes plucked out and he is standing um, in a Philistine uh gathering under this big building and he's chained up and many scholars think that he was probably chained up and was beaten and was probably naked um that was a, a common practice for the canaanites to do with with slaves or, or captured enemies and and samson had been known for destroying thousands of philistines so the fact that they had captured him and they were mocking him was like a victory dance for the for the philistines and the philistines were a canaanite tribe and so they have him chained up there and at the end of samson's life he repents and he puts his faith in god and he said and he asked the lord if he would give him strength just one last time and he and the lord grants his um, his repentance and pours out his mercy on samson and samson is then a part of those um, heroes of the faith uh, mentioned in hebrews 11 because he puts his faith and trust in God and the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he pushes the building down and all of the building comes down and they all crush down on the Philistines and God's judgment is poured out on the Philistines in um, Samson's sacrifice. Now, Samson is the last judge and that that is the last story of the last judge, but it's not the last story in the book of Judges. Um, notably in this book, the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle, and except for these last um, stories, uh, kind of exclude the Levites as priests. Um, the last story, the last two stories here are really going to get into the depravity of, of Israel because the Levites were called to be priests. And we see that um, that they were supposed to be leading God's people. Moses was a Levite, and he had established the Levitical law, 
and the tabernacle, and it was being neglected in the book of Judges. And it's very clear its absence is deafening. So here we have, uh, in the last story, we have a Levite who is is being um, bought by somebody, paid off, not as a slave, but saying, hey, would you come and be my priest? And the Levite says, yes. And then he, the, the guy who pays him to be his priest turns around and says, here's my idol and this is my God. Will you administer to me um, what I need to do and be a priest and, and talk to this God for me? And the Levite accepts the money and does it. Um, the man ordains him and he makes him a priest on behalf of this idol. And it's just to show the depravity of the Levites and that they were supposed to be the tribe that was uh, conducting the ceremonial laws associated with the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And it's completely absent right now that they are they are being priest not for the one true God, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of Israel, but they were being gods for carven images, that they were being gods for pieces of wood, for for stones, for rocks, that that this is what the Israel that the Levites had come to. Now this last story is the most graphic story in Judges and probably the least talked about. Um in this story, but in this one, the Levite is married to a, a woman and she commits adultery. Now, the story begins with uh, the committing of the adultery and the punishment for adultery was supposed to be stoning. Um, but nobody in Israel is following the law, especially the Levites. So she goes back to her father's house and four months later, the Levite goes up to uh, his father-in-law's house to to get his wife and to ask for her to come back. And um, it says that he was trying to, um, that he was speaking kindly to her. Um, there's a game that's played with the father-in-law and with the, the Levite and that he tries to get him to stay and it's like, it's back and forth. But then eventually he realizes that his wife is not going to come back to him so he leaves now the the levite has a concubine with him and the, as they're coming back the levite and his concubine are coming back and it specifically says that they tried to avoid going to a canaanite city to stay in a city that was run by the tribe of benjamin now two things to note here First is that a concubine can either mean a slave or it was the status for a – it was a lesser legal status of a wife. So many times in scripture we'll talk about a concubine as a – but it's really just like a, a – almost like a secondary wife. Now, this is not something that God has has issued out in his law or made legal in his law. This is not something that God has – done or ordained or given permission to. This is a rebellion against God, that they are having multiple wives or that their wives are considered slaves. We remember that in the creation order that Adam and Eve were both made in the image of God, that they were both equal parts of God. Now they have different roles, and we've talked about those roles throughout this podcast, and that the, the man is to lead his family. But here we see the rebellion with with concubines. The next thing to note is that the town that they go to that is run by the tribe of Benjamin is uh, is called Gibeah and this is the town of King Saul comes out of. Now there is an underlying theme through through judges of the town of Bethlehem in the town of Gibeon and the Benjamin, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin being bad, and the towns from Judah being good, and and the 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 purpose of that is to is, is kind of establishing David's Davidic kingdom, that that 
David was the better king. He came from Bethlehem. He came from Judah, whereas King Saul came out of the tribe of of Benjamin, and he came from the tribe of Gibeah. So back to the story, the man, the Levite enters into Gibeah with his concubine. He stays with a generous man who gives him food and a place to stay. In the story, it's very similar to the story in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, men come to the house and they want to do sexual acts with the man and with his concubine. The man is the the man who owns the home in a disgusting way. And it's just when you read this thing, it just makes you cringe. And I think you're supposed to read this and cringe and think about how wicked they have become. The owner of the house from the tribe of Benjamin offers up his own daughters for these men of the town to abuse. And and the Levite offers up his concubine to save himself. So he's giving up his wife. And we're seeing that, that the story of where Adam and Eve, where Adam gives his wife over to Satan to interact with Satan. He's supposed to be protecting his wife. We see that Eve is interacting with Satan. We see that growing and spiraling into the worst case scenario now where a man is offering up his wife for other men to to have their way with her. And the Bible is very brief on this part, but it says that the group of Benjamites abused her all night. It says that they violated her. And in the morning, she walks back into the house and she dies. The Levite, in response to seeing the abuse, is so disgusted at what is happening that he this is this is I don't I've never talked about this story and I've never heard anybody talk about it either. So it's it's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about, but let's get through it. So the Levite actually cuts up her body into multiple parts and sends her body parts out to the rest of the tribes of Israel with a message that the tribe of Benjamin has done this to his concubine that they have abused her and that they abused her throughout the night and violated her. And then they killed her. Um, And so all the tribes of Israel rally up and they fight the tribe of Benjamin and they start to, they all but destroy the tribe of Benjamin that, that God, uh, they constantly ask God if they should be fighting their own tribes and God grants them the judgment against the Benjamites for this sin. And and they whittle down the Benjamites to a very small group of people. Um and then and then the story of Judges ends with the tribe of Benjamin not having uh, the 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 remaining men in the tribe of Benjamin not having any wives. And so <laughs> And just a disgusting act of rebellion. They start kidnapping women from other tribes at a women's only dance celebration. It was pure and utter evil. This is probably the the darkest book of the Bible. It ends with saying, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This book is setting the stage for Israel to demand a king. They want an earthly king that will guide them, instruct them, and execute the law of God. We will temporarily see a good king in David. He is not perfect, but as we talk through the early kings, we will see that David is typological of Jesus. And Jesus is the real king, that without his kingship and without his salvation, we would all be lost and we would be depraved as the Israelites became in the book of Judges. I apologize that this podcast ended on such a heavy and dark note, but remember, it is it was perfect for our current day um, as we are are walking in in a darkness of our own day to remember what the Heidelberg Catechism says in the first question. It says, "What is your only comfort in life and death?" 
And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of the eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. If you found this podcast helpful and edifying, please share it with your friends, comment, like, and review. Every interaction on social media um, and on the podcast catchers makes a big difference in growing the audience for the Boring Theology Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time to discuss the early kingdoms. Lord willing, it'll be on next Friday. Oh, thank you.